You're listening to the That's My Financial Guy podcast, where we talk about life, love, the funny, and of course, money. What could go wrong? Welcome to another episode of the That's My Financial Guy podcast. I am your host, Brian Haney of The Haney Company, and I am pumped because my dear friend, Matthew Grace, is uh, joining me today virtually because... You know, we're doing that thing now. So uh, how's it going down on the on the boat? You know, if I if I had uh, known this was coming, I probably still would have bought the boat. It's a great place to quarantine, honestly. The views are awesome and spent a lot more traffic with Marine One and, and uh, Blackhawk uh, helicopters flying overhead. So. Yeah. yeah, I bet I bet it's a little bit different these days than whatever the normal spring to summer traffic would be, right? Yeah, and it's kind of surreal because the you know construction down here on the wharf hasn't stopped at all. So there's cranes moving all the time. So if I didn't know what was going on, I would think everything's normal. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we you know be real serious and talk shop, let's get to know you. Let's have a little bit of fun. Um, okay. First question: If you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would you live? I think I would probably do Utah. So my wife and I have driven cross country on our motorcycle for our honeymoon. And, you know, I've been to Utah a couple other times too. And that state is just gorgeous and there's so much to see. And, you know, wintertime, great skiing, summertime, you know, beautiful landscapes, a lot of hiking and, you know, really good hunting out there, which I haven't been able to do yet. So I think that'd probably be where I'd like to spend a year. Nice. It, it is very picturesque for sure. Yeah ton of fun yeah i don't want to say alaska but probably a little too much cold up there for me to be there for a full year <laughs> too much cold too much bears so they say <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right absolutely what food will you not eat under any circumstance so sea urchin i've always have uh like trying delicacies and other cultures and things like that and i'll pretty much try anything once or more and every time i've tried it it's just a I, I found it to be completely disgusting, and so I've given up on it. That one's off my off my list. Excellent. That's and that's a new that's a new one for this question. So that's good. I'm I'm accumulating a short list from everybody that answers that question, and and we have not had sea urchins. So that's a good one. I like that. <laughs> Would you rather go to space or to the bottom of the ocean? a hard one actually i thought about this for a while i think bottom of the ocean because i don't think anybody's done it that would be kind of cool to do something first yeah i i um this one i think i probably waffle on myself because i'm kind of like space final frontier that's some cool stuff but then you know you, you see these movies like you know gravity or whatever where people are just kind of like floating out into space and that's terrifying to me and yet i'm also terrified <laughs> of sharks so i'm kind of like yep. What, you know, what do I dislike more? But yeah, I, I definitely yeah. think like some deep, you know, trenches and some of that underwater stuff that just, there's probably so much that we just haven't explored. So I, I think I'm still. Yeah, it'd be pretty, yeah, I think it'd be pretty neat to see one of those fish that has a little, you know, light bulb on the front of its face come swimming into your view. That'd be pretty, pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, 
besides this podcast, what other podcasts would you recommend somebody take a listen to? Honestly, I'm I'm not a big podcast person. I, I tend to, when I listen to stuff, listen to Audible um, okay. and a lot of books on, on uh, tape, I guess, or whatever, digital, you know, or just like talk radio and things along those lines or I guess I listen to YouTube versions of podcasts sometimes. Um, yeah. Ben Shapiro is one I actually listen to quite a lot of. I don't know. I, I enjoy his uh, people who are very logical in the way they present their their points of view and whatnot, and that don't quite fit into one box or the other. So yeah, no, I agree. That's awesome. Yeah, what's he's an one? interesting one too. Like he'll he'll bring on people like. Um, he, he tends to be like very libertarian, but he brought on Andrew Yang as one of his um, uh, guests on like a Sunday show, which I thought was really interesting. And he, he tends to sometimes, you know, try to push people and ask them questions and whatnot, but he, he's, he's, uh, uh, he does a good job, brings in people from different walks of life. That's awesome. Yeah, that th- those are always, I think, fun, especially, you know, when you just have fascinating variety of guests which is hopefully something I think we got here as well. So, but yeah. <laughs> hopefully. What's, uh, what's been a good book uh, on audible that you've, you've enjoyed recently. Um, let me pull up my list. Honestly, the, uh, I haven't been doing as much with the lack of commuting that I've uh, right been having. Cause normally I would like to listen to them, but there's one that I thought was really good. Um, from a guy named Gary Bishop and it was, it was called stop doing that S word. I don't know if this is a friend, you know, family friendly one, but um, <laughs> he, he's, you know, got a Scottish accent, which, you know, makes it a little more fun to listen to. And it's, it's kind of a self-improvement book, but I thought that one was really good. Um, trying to think of one of the other ones that I just recently, recently looked at too. Uh, I'm a big Ayn Rand fan, so I've listened to like eight of her books on that one. So I would never right. have made it through Atlas Shrugged, uh, Shrugged if I didn't listen to it. So uh, <laughs> Jordan, yeah, Jordan Peterson actually did a really good one, 12 Rules for Life. That was one of the more recent ones I read too. Nice. Oh, nice. actually, this is a really good one. Black Box Thinking for Business, I thought was an awesome book. That That's really worth checking out. I, I think I've seen that advertised somewhere. So, all right, good. I'll put that on my short list. All right. So tell, uh, tell the audience just about yourself, you know, what you do, what you specialize in and, uh, you know, how you deliver value professionally. Yeah. So I, um, work for first financial group and I run our brokerage department. Um, meaning I help people who are financial advisors in our firm, uh, especially with disability insurance and, and, their needs for their clients to go ahead and design those. And then also people who are independent advisors that want to work with Guardian Life, they have to go through our agency channel. So I help to educate them and, and you know, hopefully create value for them and their clients. And uh, my uh, expertise where I started is really with disability insurance. Um, you know, although I'm a pretty much a, uh, an industry nerd, so there's a lot of areas I could take a pretty deep dive on. But being that that's the, the biggest risk that people our age face, um, and probably the most under, uh, talked about area of financial planning, that, that's, that's really where I've carved a, a pretty good niche. Well, and, you know, I'm glad that you said that cause I, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I certainly think it's, um, you know, something that just, whether it's widely misunderstood or just literally not 
a topic of conversation that people want to engage in. How did you decide um, if, if it was a decision to kind of specialize or at least pony up on disability? So completely random, actually. I, uh, so I came out of college, um, did a year of service at my high school. So I played football at Catholic U, then went to Gonzaga in D.C. and, and uh, where I attended for high school and did a year of service teaching and coaching and running retreats and whatnot. And I was to actually make money because it was a service program. I was bartending three or four nights a week and I was pressure washing and painting and I actually had saved up money with uh, my college roommate. We bought a, bought a house that we were renting out all this other stuff on the side, trying to figure out what to do next in 2007, basically. And I got introduced to the owner of our firm from when I played fullback, my tailback, right? The guy I was lead blocking for, and he just suggested we meet. I literally had no idea. I thought of financial planning as the stockbroker, Merrill Lynch type uh, person. And so I went to meet him with literally the first suit that I had, the only suit that I had that still fit me from high school, basically interviewed. <laughs> and he had just recently purchased the firm, right? So, and they had a need in that space because I loved what they did and the idea of actually looking at more than just their stock portfolio and helping people actually design a plan that, that could work in all circumstances. And, you know, one of the big things for me, right, was, um, and I think this is kind of beat into you at a Jesuit university as being a man for others. And, you know, you can make money, but you got to, you have to do good while making money. Right. And that was something where I, I saw an opportunity to do it, but I didn't know whether when I was 24 years old, if I'd be able to cut it because everybody I knew was just, scraping by, right? They hadn't started families yet. They, they're they just getting established. And, um, you know, so they saw this as an opportunity I could jump in and they, you know, all my testing said I was very analytical and I'm the son of a CPA. So they thought I could be a product specialist for them, basically. So I dove in and, and just learned it on the fly, basically. That's awesome. Yeah. But, you know, and, and it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I, I, you know, coming out of college for me with a journalism degree and thinking I'm going to be the next Tony Kornheiser and obviously not having that even remotely come to fruition. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like what, what you're sharing about kind of that passion point in terms of, you know, what our industry just really financial services in general is the intersection of, you know, being able to deliver significant value, but also to do a ton of good because, Let's face it, you know, money, money is the universal language. Everybody needs it and, and has issues with it. It cuts across all races, demographics, you name it. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a pretty Absolutely. exciting thing we get to do every day. Yeah, and it's, I don't know. I, I feel like I've, there's a lot of people who have fun jobs, but I, I feel like I would get kind of bored with them if I didn't know that I was, I was making the world a better place or helping people out. You know what I mean? That, that's something that I really like as challenging as the industry is when you can make a difference for other people with it. You know, that's, that's a reward that keeps you coming back. Right. Completely agree. Yeah. I mean, in, in working with my father, I mean, he, his story is unbelievable because he started out in the industry as a claims adjuster. And he, he has this amazing story of the first yeah, I think what was either his first or one of the first claims that he delivered and just how, you know, literally bringing this check to a to a woman that was a courtroom typist and having her just break down in front of him. And he's like, I, you know, he's probably your age, our age, coming out of college, whatever the dynamic was, totally not knowing what to expect and having her just literally say, 
you know, you don't know what this means to me because of this, we're going to be okay. Because of this, my family is going to be okay. And, you know, it's the, it's those types of moments, those types of experiences that I think, you know, reinforce what we're talking about, but also are the tangible examples as to why some of this stuff, especially the protection stuff is so important. Um, and so, you know, as a segue into just kind of really the world of insurance protection, and I think specifically disability, how do you see, um, you know, how do you see that, I guess, playing out in, in what most most people experience when it comes to this, and how would you envision it being different? So I think, unfortunately, the, the there's a lot of people who think of disability insurance as that'll never happen to me, partially because it's probably more painful to go through than, than the idea of actually passing away, right? Because if you leave your wife and kids or your husband and kids with, uh, you know, and you're no longer here, at least they can move on, right? But the sure. idea of actually having to just sit there and, and be a bystander as your spouse has to carry the water for both of you. Uh, I don't know. I personally think would be just a horrible experience. I, I can't even imagine having to go through that. And, um, you know, I think that's part of it. Right. And then on top of it, usually people who have a lot of money, right. They don't necessarily get as concerned about it. Right. But people who are starting out, there's limited resources and, you know, it's deemed to be expensive and things along those lines. And people also just in general kind of minim try to get minimal coverage. I think a lot of times because they're, they're always just looking at, you know, how much can I afford on a monthly basis? And, and they don't want to add another expense line item that, that takes away from them being able to save for college or, you know, pay their student loans down or whatever. There's so many demands for our dollar and they kind of forget the, the whole underlying necessity of that paycheck to continue for those things to actually occur. Right. So, yeah. you know, what I would love to know or love to see happen is it just be, more heavily talked about. I mean, there's certain demographics, right? Doctors hear about it, it's beating their head over and over again as they go through residency that they're basically highly paid manual laborers. And if they don't get their, you know, hands and wrists and eyes and back insured, then, you know, they're just <laughs> not being very intelligent about it, right? But the average person coming out, they just take whatever their employer's given them with a group LTD plan and that's it. They just kind of check the box that, yeah, I've got that or I've got coverage. Um, you know, and I think part of it is they don't have time to show up at a new job, right, and dig into those benefits. They just might get a cursory overview of it, and then it's off to try to prove themselves so they keep that paycheck coming in, right, and, and you know, make an impression on their employer. But it would be great to see, I think, in an employer setting, a bigger push to educate employees on things just in general with financial planning. But uh, it tends to be, at least from what I've seen, and you, I imagine you probably had the same experience, that it's more of the stuff like the 401k investment options. That's the education that's mandated, right? That they have to give. And um, I don't know if the answer is government coercing businesses to start doing that education, but ultimately <laughs> it would be great to see employers at least step up and say, let's, let's try to make sure our employees are taken care of um, at least educated on what they have so they can take action if they want to. Well, you know, and that's, you made such a good point that, you know, I think um, there's a huge need to integrate 
a broader understanding of some very basic components of insurance. I think, you know, you certainly don't come out of college, regardless of your major, with a, with a high level knowledge of the inner workings of life insurance, of disability, of PNC. I mean, you just, nobody does, you know, unless you, that's what you were studying. Um, and, and, you know, there's just, and, and so you kind of walk into life and your profession and what have you, and depending on kind of your bent towards that, and, and like you said, depending on how much your employer helps you, there's, you know, there is this massive kind of, I think, just misunderstanding or, or really just lack of knowledge in general, because it isn't, it isn't a point of awareness. And, and the risk component that insurance addresses, those do tend to be things people don't want to think about or talk about. So, I, I mean, yep. you know, I completely agree with you. And I think it would be great, you know, I don't know what the government's going to do, but, you know, certainly if there's a, a way, at least at an educational level, to have more um, just equipping, you know, even if it's just, you know, a, a brief amount of equipping, because it's, it's so vitally important and, you know, people need to need to have some kind of a framework in order to function and to be able to make the decisions that are important. Yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff going on that people are kind of organically trying to bring financial wellness programs into companies and and obviously small businesses have a little bit harder time doing that, but, you know, big companies are trying to do it and it's just, you know, the problem is everybody's got their niche, right, that they're good at and the, the 401k rep may be really, really good at what they're doing there, but then not uh, be all that great at other, you know, benefit services or if you get a group benefits broker, their area of specialty might be in, you know, negotiating or, or finding the right carriers and structure of a plan, but as far as individual products that that they could have and make available to the employees that may not be their niche. So it's, you know, it's one thing to have a license too, but it's also another thing to bring in experts that are good at what they do, um, you know, rather than just being the, the kind of catch all right and trying to do it all yourself. Yeah, completely agree. And, you know, let's, let's, um, let's start to kind of unpack disability, you know, not just the insurance, but let's actually start with the risk first, because you mentioned it, earlier right it, it yeah. it's paycheck protection it's really your, your biggest asset but i don't i don't think that just understanding it that way is is certainly not common knowledge so let's talk about just the let's talk about the risk first how do you explain or kind of define it to you know a layman or just you know an affluent professional what is what is what are your talking points and how do you want somebody to understand it so I always look at what's, you know, what's the asset first, right? Like what's the value of, of your actual paycheck? Because most people don't usually, right, take the time to say, okay, what is the, the total amount I'll likely earn over my working years, right? And if you actually put it in context and say, okay, well, I'll make 100000 a year and I'm 30 years old, right? Even if you never got another raise, right, you might go ahead and make another whatever, $3 million over the course of your working years or something along those lines, you factor in raises, whatever that total number is, you know, that's everything you're going to do to pay the mortgage, right? Pay for kids' tuition if that's your choice, put away money for retirement, go on vacations, go out to dinner with your spouse. You know, everything is run from that money coming in. So if that tap gets stopped or significantly reduced, you know, what does your life look like? And ultimately, 
in that context, I think it makes it a little bit easier for people to look at it and say, this is so vital. You know, there's always like the old analogies, right? Like, what do you protect the goose or the golden egg, right? Ultimately the, the goose, obviously, right? You can always make more golden eggs, but um, that's kind of where I start. And then from there backing out, okay, well, what do you actually have, right? How much do you have under contract currently? And most people don't have any clue or they'll say, well, I've got like 60% from work. And so, if you have somebody that's familiar with group long-term disability that can review it for you, it'll take them a lot less time where they can look through and say, well, it's, it is 60%, but it's capped at $5,000. You make over $100,000. Therefore, you don't actually get 60, you get 50 or you get 40, whatever your, your income is. Or if you have significant bonuses, that's a lot of times not covered, right? Or overtime even a lot of times excluded. So figuring out what that actually num that number is and then taking into account that it might be taxable. Probably 80%, 90% of the time, you'll get a benefit that's, that's actually taxed as income. So even if you get the 60, you might only net about 40% of your gross pay. And so when you start to quantify and say, okay, here's what I actually have, here's, here's what that would look like if I went on claim now, how long could I actually run my household with the assets that I've got, right? It, you can quickly see most people don't have enough assets to, to retain that risk. And you can only do really two things with risk, right? You can either retain it or you can transfer it. And personally, I'm a big fan of retaining what I can afford to. I don't want to pay for insurance on things that, uh, like if my TV goes out, I don't, I don't buy insurance on that. I'll buy a new TV. Um, and similarly with a health insurance, I'd rather have a high deductible and go ahead and self-insure with what I can afford and, and put the, the catastrophic stuff onto the insurance company let somebody else balance sheet hit it, right? So ultimately there, once you've identified that, you can determine what the gap is and then start to put some type of price to that and figure out how to design around it. But that that's usually the way I always try to approach it with people. I like to assume everybody's completely capable of making an informed decision and give them that information. And then from there, they can either decide to do something or they can say, no, I'm good with it. But you know, until they've seen that there's a problem, uh, I think jumping out with a proposal and trying to sell a product is, is premature and usually doesn't go very well. Well, I, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head in so many areas, right? You know, quantifying that it's, you know, you know, you might call it lifestyle risk, right? Your, your world doesn't go around if you can't afford to do it and to live it. Um, and that's, you know, that's a very critical, I think, framework that, uh, it, it's it's necessary, helpful, and important for for people to start to have you know to just see it for what it really is, like you said, and then also you know understanding how you can protect yourself against it, and you know digging into you know a group group plan, for example, and you know maybe we can start to talk a, a, through some of those uh, some of the moving parts of how disability policies, you know, differences between group and individual uh, work, because that's, that's also where that's, that's the art and the science of it, right? Um, you know, and I know you've, you've spent a lot of time understanding that. So, you know, we can start maybe with, with the group space. And, and I like to always remind, uh, you know, the, our clients, the, the people we work with in the association space and our group clients that, you know, when you really think about group coverage in general, it's trying to do as much good as it can, but for, you know, a specified period of time, right? Because most group plans are not underwritten medically. So, you know, they're taking everybody in the door and they, 
they have to, the insurance company has to find ways to manage their risk. And they do that in how they build the, those policies out. So um, let's kind of go through, you know, some of the moving parts of a group policy and, and talk about that. You mentioned, you know, the, the replacement ratio and then, you know, the monthly cap. What are some of the other things that you, you look at and help people understand? Yeah, so a lot of times when people have long-term disability, they'll also have short-term disability. And this is, um, I think there's so many different components people get confused. I think even to explain that would be helpful. So, you know, short-term disability is typically something where you break your arm, you throw your back out, something that's going to be short in duration. And they usually will pay weekly benefits up to 90 days or sometimes 180 days, right? And it's a very different risk for something that's short duration like that for the insurance company to take on. Um, you'll see maternity benefits. Sometimes carriers will actually include that in there. Their company will choose to include it. Uh, and then after that, they'll have, you know, whether it's 90 or 180, they'll set the LTD to start up right after that, the long-term disability. And how those benefits are paid is on a monthly basis. And so what happens if it's a 90-day wait is you would have to be sick or hurt for 90 days and then your benefits start accruing on day 91 and your first check comes in on 120th 20th day right so with a long-term disability plan you you're basically self-insuring for four months if you don't have short-term disability right? right if you've got a 180 day wait right it's it's actually seven months before you actually get a check from the insurance company so those are things to, to just know and, and how yours would actually play out and, and do you have enough cash reserves to be able to do it right um, your individual policy that you would stack on top doesn't necessarily have to tie into that, but um, how they define disability can be really important too. So group plans, like you said, they're not underwriting, so they're looking at the group as they're underwriting. So what kind of spread of risk are they getting? And there's they have to have different provisions in there to protect the insurance company, right? So some of them, most of them, what you'll see is the definition of disability will say for the first couple years, uh, if you're disabled and can't do your job, right, you're sick or hurt and you can't do your job, that there's a benefit payable. But after two years, it'll convert to oftentimes a disabled and not working. So if you could do some other job where they would either not have to pay any benefits or they could reduce your benefits, right? So that's a very important distinction. Might not be as big a deal if you work in more of an administrative role and you sit behind a desk, but if you are doing something like a, a doctor, for instance, that, that's a very big deal, right? Because if you can't use your hands and operate anymore, obviously, uh, you might be able to go work in some other industry, but you wouldn't necessarily make nearly the same money. So that's an important thing to, to take into account, too. Um, also, the way that it's set up is long-term disability plans usually will integrate with Social Security disability. So what that means is you will be required to apply for Social Security disability and if you receive benefits, oftentimes they will reduce the benefit that's paid from the insurance company, right? That's one of the things that just people aren't aware of, and, and oftentimes it can lead to some frustration with it, because sometimes they may think you should get approved, and you might not get approved by Social Security Disability right away. Uh, so a lot of moving pieces with that. One of the other really big things, again, and this is what makes, I think, disability insurance a lot more complicated than life insurance as far as claims go, is there's only one part of the claim with life insurance, right? If you're not, if you can't fog a mirror anymore, the benefit's pretty yeah, clearly no payable. Equals check. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Whereas disability insurance, uh, most of them, about 80%, at least with Guardian, 
end up being a partial claim at some point, meaning you're back to work at your job at a reduced capacity. And that can look a lot of different ways. That could be that somebody, like really common scenarios, you get, you get diagnosed with cancer, start going through treatment and, and keep working, right? And then ultimately as the treatments progress, people can't work as much because they're just exhausted, they're just wore out. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's also they can't be around other people for fear of getting pneumonia or other infections. And so their income and their hours start dropping. And basically you have on a monthly basis kind of a determination of your benefits. And then say recovery happens and you start coming back to work. It's very rare that somebody is just dramatically all of a sudden better and they come back at 100%, right? Normally there's a, a time to kind of transition back into work and benefits will reduce as your income increases. And so that's really important to know how that actually works and, you know, how the plan is written. And there's a lot of disparity from one carrier to the other. Uh, and Group LTD does a good job. For the most part, it does a good job, right? Um, really where you start running into issues, I think, is, is more on the amount you actually get. Um, and again, for people with incentive compensation or any bonus compensation, you really have to look at and say, uh, normally it's it's covered earnings is, is the definitions inside of the contract. Um, and all of these things are legal contracts, right? Ultimately, there's there's a lot of legalese inside of it, but you have to know, you know, how do they actually calculate your benefit to determine if you have enough personally. And so, again, I think, you know, that's where it, it, it helps if you've got experience. You know, it's one thing to go through and read it, try to figure it out, but... Um, you know, I can usually look through a plan for two to five minutes and figure out the, the lay of the land very quickly because I've seen literally thousands of them over the past 13 years or so since I've been doing it. Um, so those are some very key pieces that I would say. Uh, mental nervous limitations, actually, that's a big point. Almost all group LTD plans will limit your mental nervous claim if you were uh, disabled because of stress or anxiety, depression, things like that, or alcohol or substance abuse to 24 months, unless you're confined to a treatment um, facility. So most people don't think that that'll ever happen to them unless they have past experience with it, right? But it does happen. I know, you know, for Guardian, uh, again, specific to their claims, it's somewhere between 25 and 30% of claims actually are related to mental nervous. Yep. Um, so, you know, it is a big risk again. So you either retain risk or you transfer it. And so that's something that you know, I do try to advocate for people to get a policy that does cover it um, if they're going to buy something to supplement what they have through work. Uh, but ultimately, sometimes that's not possible, right? So, but again, going through and, and knowing the lay of the land is, is important. And the, the other really key distinction between long-term disability and an individually owned policy is that the long-term disability plan is a contract between the insurance company and your employer, right? So the employer if in times like we are right now, right, revenues drop off, they can very easily cancel that coverage, right? If they yeah, need to, to absolutely. pop up the bottom line, you know, they could reduce the amount of uh, insurance. We had uh, a local hospital that actually a, a few years back had a $30,000 limit for all their doctors. They got a million dollar rate increase because they had a, a few really large claims. And basically the the hospital came back and said, we're just going to cut this down to $20,000 rather than paying that that higher premium, right? So you've got whatever a thousand doctors that all of a sudden had, you know, 30% less coverage than they had the day before and they had no say in it. 
right? So if some of it's a control element, right? Like how much do you, you want to leave that responsibility to your employer who you may not be with, right, uh, in the future. So if you do decide to leave and go to another company, they might have different benefits, but you don't get to take that with you, right? The other big thing that I see, honestly, that, that is oftentimes really unfortunate because you might not be able to do anything about it is if you get somebody who's 45 or 50 and they've decided they want to go start their own firm or their own company and they leave and they had coverage and now they, they've, you know, they've gotten older and there's some health condition, they may be uninsurable on their own. So if they're a startup, you know, they could be stuck. Right. And so that's the big difference. When you go apply for individual coverage, you own it, but you have to get approved for it because they're not using the group to get their spread of risk. They have to look at you specifically. So, you know, example I always give with people, right. As I, you know, played football in college, and I got flipped on my head my freshman year of college and I had bulging discs in my neck, right? And so it doesn't really bother me much. Uh, you know, I don't usually run into people with my head anymore since I'm not playing football, but I, I have a rider that says, we're not going to cover your cervical spine, you know, unless, you know, whatever, I get a car accident and break my neck. But ultimately, degenerative disc and anything like that is excluded, right? And so that's to me, not, not that big a deal, but ultimately now that I've, I've gotten older since I have my policies, I also had a back surgery a couple of years ago. Um, but because of that, they're stuck. They have to cover me because of that surgery because I had the policy already. If I wanted to get it now, it would be my cervical spine and my, uh, my lumbar spine would be excluded as well. Right. So the sooner you get it, obviously the, the better health you're likely going to be in. Well, and that's, and that's a huge point too, right? You know, when I think we already talked about kind of the financial risk, but, you know, there's a lot to be said for the health risk and, and really understanding that your health is also an asset because generally speaking, we don't get healthier as we age. Um, hopefully that doesn't mean for everybody that you get less healthy, but the likelihood that you know, you're going to, you're going to feel as good and, and be in as good shape, you know, by your, by the time you're 45 and when you're 25, those are just not really great odds. And and so I think that that's another thing that you just brought up. That's very important to, to understand and to recognize that it's not just looking forward when you're coming into, you know, work or early in a career, or even, you know, middle, middle of career, but it's also to realize that, you know, covet your health because in, in this arena and in, in life insurance as well, to a certain extent, um, you know, it can really be valuable and, and you may have some real advantages to go out into the individual market uh, and take advantage of, of, you know, good policy design and pricing that's, you know, going to be a lot less than it might be, you know, if you wait till later. Yeah. And it's, um, it's funny, a lot of times, right, the, the reason people don't buy insurance really with any product, right, is because of, of cost or what could they do with that money if they weren't putting it into insurance, right? And so sometimes it's like, well, if I invested that money over time, I'd have a lot more. Well, you know, when you think about it, you can't get declined from setting up an IRA or Roth IRA because of something outside of your control, right? Your Roth IRA, theoretically, if you make enough money, you wouldn't be able to put it in there anymore. But, you know, ultimately, putting that that money away, you could always do it later, right? You could always put more money in the 401k, always in the 529. But this is an option that can be taken off the table very quickly. And, you know, unfortunately, 
we're seeing it a lot, right? With this virus right now, people go from, they think they're perfectly healthy and suddenly now they're, they're infected with this virus that you know, we didn't even know about six months ago. Right. And yeah. it just literally has nothing to do with, um, uh, your stock portfolio. But if it, if it happens where all of a sudden that income stops, then whatever assets you do have, that's suddenly your insurance, right? You're having to invade stuff that's in the stock market. That's now down, whatever, 20%, depending on how you're invested, right. Or invade your savings, your emergency fund and all these other things. And then, you know, ultimately would have been better off having had your income actually protected if you'd done it. Yeah. No. And, and, and I think that you're right. You don't, you know, the idea about self-insurance can sound good, but you really do need to take a look at the reality of what that looks like and how it works. And frankly, you know, you know, I mean, and I work with a lot of affluent people as, as I know you do as well. You know, the wealthier people don't try to self-insure they get the insurance that they need because they see the value in transferring that risk. Like you said, not everybody should think that they're just going to become their own insurance company because that's probably not the best way to go about it. Um, and it's probably not that realistic from a financial mitigation standpoint. Yeah. And I'm a big believer. Like if, you, if I can, if I can focus on, you know, doing what is good for me and my family long-term will be just fine. Right. And I, anything that I can't control, which again, that could be getting in a, a car accident and getting sued, getting sick or passing away or whatever, any of those things, I, I just want to take it off the table so that I can basically, it's like bowling with the bumpers on, you know, those things that would blow up when we were kids, yeah. you know, at least I know I'm going to not end up in the gutter. <laughs> that's the, that's the big thing when I try to look at insurance. So I've always taken that approach is trying to get what I can get now. And then, you know, every couple of years, I'll have to look at it and address and see if it's still the right amount or if it's too much or whatever, and then, you know, change accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, I, you know, I can't, I, I, I think of it for myself, you know, why did I get protection? Well, I can't turn around and look at my wife and daughter and say, I love you and I care for you if I don't care for them, if something happens to me, because to me, the two are incongruent, right? I can't say that in one sense, and then leave myself and them vulnerable in the same, you know, standpoint and just, well, you know, cause if something does happen, right. The, the, the excuse of, well, I, you know, I thought I'd get to it at this point goes out the window. So I, I, I can put yeah. it. You know, there's a couple things that I think are good to also identify and talk about when it comes to, you know, how might you put, an individual policy together and construct it the right way. Um, we've kind of identified and talked through that there are some, you know, very common gaps that can be placed if you happen to be, uh, you know, happen to be somebody that does already have group coverage. But I think one of the things that we've mentioned it a couple of times, we haven't talked about how, you know, protection can work and that's, you know, contributing money to our retirement plan. Um, and that isn't something that gets covered in a group plan at all. Um, and so let's yeah. kind of look at that and, and some of the other components to how you might build an individual policy to really address a lot of these risks and have them be married, you know, effectively to a group plan. Absolutely. I mean, the big first point I would say is don't let the, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Ultimately, you know, getting something in force 
that you can afford and cash flow and be comfortable with is is great. It doesn't have to be the absolute 100% best policy because, you know, ultimately we have uh, either our only one paycheck or maybe two paychecks to ultimately run our whole household. So I do like to show people what's available to them and we got to fit it in a budget um, ultimately, right? So there's certain things, like you said, the 401k, not just what you put away, but even your employer match, it's not covered. So if you've got a, a generous employer who puts away and matches 5%, you know, that could be if you're making a hundred grand, $5,000 a year, that's not caught up in your group LTD plan. Right. And then, um, you know, one of the things that just popped in my head that is worth mentioning with everything else that's going on right now is group LTD is actually based off of your most recent income. So if your income does drop because of the economy, if you do have variable compensation, your benefit actually might not be what you expect. They may look back and say your income's dropped, so now we're going to pay lower. So that is something to take into account. It's a distinction between if you buy an individual contract, it's for a set amount based on when you got underwritten, not at the time of claim. So when I'm setting up a policy, most of the time I always recommend that people look at a true own occupation benefit, right? So usually you're supplementing group, so there's some benefit that might stop if you can go back to work doing something else, but regardless if you're in financial services or law or whatever, people tend to go into a niche eventually. And if they can't do that, I would really like them to at least have something payable, even if they can do something else, right? If they've got to modify what they're, they're doing to go to work. Cause at least in my experience, most people do want to do something. They don't want to just sit home. If they, if they had the option, they would, they would go back and be a Walmart greeter. If they could do something to get out of the house, right? I mean, obviously we're getting a, experience of staying home for an extended period of time right now and it can get old very fast right yeah. so um the good thing is if you're not a doctor that doesn't really cost much of anything to have that on a policy it's really not a uh, much additional cost to kind of take that off the, the table and a reason being too is it's less likelihood the insurance company doesn't have to pay the claim so i think that's really important we kind of hinted at partial benefits it's is such a big component. If you're not buying a, a disability policy with a partial benefit, it, in, in my opinion, you're really doing yourself a disservice because it, it takes a lot of risk off the insurance company and ships it back to you. Um, and, and really, again, that's where you're going back to work, but not 100% right away. It gives you that time to be able to transition over time without a kind of a cliff where all of a sudden benefits go from, you know, full benefits to zero. So that's a really key thing. If you're younger, couple really important things are protecting your right to get more. As I mentioned, I had a, a spinal fusion done a couple years ago. And if you have a future increase option, or you might call it like a future purchase option, every company has their own terminology for it, but it allows you the right to buy insurance later, just with income documentation, showing you make more money, but without any medical questions. And so if your health changes, that becomes it's so much more valuable all of a sudden. Like you can imagine if you got diagnosed with cancer or something along those lines. Like we had a, we had a doctor um, two years ago, actually, who she had bought a policy when she came out of uh, residency for like $5,000 a month of benefit. But she had another, you know, $10,000, I believe, of future increase option on it. And she ended up having a, a very weird thing. She got a, a virus when she was giving birth to her uh, second child that affected her eyesight. She started getting macular degeneration. So you can imagine as a doctor, if your, your eyesight starts to go, you're not going to be very useful in that industry anymore. Right? So basically what she was able to do is say, 
all right, well, I've got this huge increase in my income. I want to go ahead and get more insurance. Now that I know that this issue is coming, I need to get it done ASAP. The insurance company had to give her the extra coverage without asking any of these questions. And she knew eventually, like within the next year or two, her site was going to get to the point where she couldn't, couldn't operate anymore. And so they were able to get that additional coverage. And then all of a sudden, you know, she's on claim. You know, coincidentally, she actually converted a bunch of term insurance and flavor of premium to whole life insurance as well. And that, that too started paying where she's getting, you know, her full disability benefits plus waiver of premium on her cash value life insurance that's accumulating for her as well. So, um, but again, that's, that's really key. If you're not at your peak earning years, having that right is, is just huge because your health will change. I mean, ultimately it's just a matter of, uh, whether it's putting on weight or whatever, blood pressure or something, everybody eventually gets less healthier. We would live forever, right? So, yeah. you know, that's an important one. Cost of living adjustment riders uh, are definitely key to add to a policy if you're younger. Usually what those will do is once you're on claim after the first year, the benefit will go up by some percentage, usually 3%. You know, there's some differences between different carriers and how it's done, but ultimately it's making sure that, you know, you're not getting a flat paycheck while the cost of living keeps going up and up, right? Yeah. So those are, you know, pretty pretty easy and basic ones to, to think about there. The ones you're kind of referring to around retirement, there's been a couple different uh, solutions that have come out with the insurance industry. The, the most prominent one is a, you know, retire guard with Mass Mutual, retirement protection with Guardian, that, you know, different carriers have different names for them. But what that does is actually puts money away in a trust to make up for the fact that you, you no longer have earned income. You can't put money in a qualified plan. You're not allowed yeah. to, right? So what they'll do is let you cover your contributions and the employer's match. And so if you're disabled, usually disabled and not working, they'll put the money in trust and invest it until age 65 or 67. And then you'll get the money distributed to you and you can use it to make up for the fact that you did not save during those years. So even if it's a, you know, two-year benefit, and ultimately you go back to work, at least you have something that, that made up for those lost savings you would have been doing had you been working. Um, so that's a unique one to do. Uh, I happen to be a big fan. There's one with Guardian in particular that I really like that's um, called a lump sum rider, a little bit granular, but basically, especially if you're a doctor where, you know, if you get carpal tunnel and you can't operate, you might go consult and be able to do really well. The benefit actually pays even if you are working again. So it's based on, you know, the claims paid. And um, it's probably a little too nuanced for this conversation, but it's another another version of it. And ultimately, it just depends on the circumstances, which one you would you would recommend to a client. Um, another really big one that, that is new in the past couple of years is there's some student loan riders. And uh, yep. basically what they're meant to do, right, is be able to give people more coverage than they could qualify for because so many of us are coming out like my wife with a hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars worth of student loans where, you know, that at least for the time being, there's a lot more capital being <laughs> deployed to go pay off debt. And what it does is it'll, depending on the carrier and the contract, right? It might just reimburse for those payments or it might just give you a flat amount. You, you know, pay whatever you want to pay towards the loan. Um, and usually it's for a 10 or 15 year period, right? So it's a little bit cheaper than the, the base contract. So we've actually been creatively, creatively, I think, using it um, with some people, even when they don't have student loans, where they might have daycare or nanny costs for a short period of time while they're having kids. 
and they can use that to get additional coverage on the front end of their uh, their contract where the, the need's a little bit higher as far as cash flow uh, should something happen to them. So that's a big one. And one of my favorites actually is, um, is catastrophic benefits. And, you know, basically, again, people don't like to think about disability. So when they think about it, they like to think about it as, okay, I'm just sitting home watching Oprah, right? But a lot of times, you know, stuff happens. It's not, it's not that simple, right? It's, you need, like when I got my surgery, right, I had to get a uh, electric chair that would actually pick me up. Like I had to help get help getting into and out of a chair because I wasn't allowed to bend or twist for going on three or four months, um, right, because I'd steal, you know, our titanium screws and rods and all this other stuff. So you can imagine, like, being able to put pants on becomes very difficult with something like that. Oh, yeah. um, so those those are big things that people don't think about. And additionally, you've got uh, – you know, other modifications you might have to make to your house. You know, you might have to pay for somebody to be there. Luckily, you know, my aunt and mom and mother-in-law kind of came in and out and, and helped because if they didn't, then my wife wouldn't have been able to work as much, right? Because I couldn't be couldn't be home alone for quite a while there, right, with, uh, with that going on. So, you know, you can imagine if your spouse has got to take care of your kids and take care of you and still try to go out and get a paycheck – the 60% you have through work, or even if you get an individual policy to supplement, might not be enough to get it done. So a catastrophic benefit is money that comes in in excess of that when you need that help. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't cost as much, but it's it's so worth it to have it, honestly, um, if something like that were to occur. Yeah. Well, so those are kind of my... remember Christopher Reeves as the poster child for that, Superman, you know? Yeah. And, and who would have thought something like that would play out. And all of a sudden, to your point, I mean, the, the, the complete lifestyle change that came as a result of just a total freak accident. But yeah, I mean, it's more than just the income. It's all of the additional expenses, home modifications and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's hugely important. Yeah. And I think a lot of times too, it, it, it does help as far as just I don't know. A lot of guys have Superman complex and think stuff can never happen to them and whatnot. And I think that's just kind of the way we're wired. Right. Um, so I, a lot, oftentimes we'll share a personal story with them and like my back was temporary, right? I got to, you know, I'm actually better than I was before and everything, but you know, my, uh, my uncle, right. Who, who was like the family patriarch, my dad's oldest brother, the guy played uh, football at Xavier back when they started a football team back in the day, served in Vietnam, you know, we, uh, started a very successful company, went back to the Philippines, built an orphanage, got to meet the Pope. I mean, the guy, even when he retired, was still working at the company and then working for Habitat for Humanity, just was, you know, in perpetual motion. He's also like 6'3 and built like a gorilla. I mean, the guy was just a, a very large, you know, guy, right? Um, Sounds awesome. And, yeah, great guy. But he ended up getting throat cancer from Agent Orange. They think it was from oh. Agent Orange, but... Um, you know, he went from probably 260 was his, his fighting weight, right, down to he passed away at like 80 pounds. And, you know, he went through a lot of cancer treatments and all these different things. And this, again, this is somebody, you know, my dad looked up to, everyone in the family looked up to. But when that happened, you know, his wife couldn't take care of him and, like, help him get up and move him around because, you know, she wasn't strong enough to do it. So his son ended up, you know, losing his job, staying home from work with his dad. And so there's all this other stuff. And luckily... He was, you know, pretty successfully or successful financially, 
but ultimately, uh, it did have a downstream effect on the rest of his family in, in what they had to do. And so seeing that firsthand, it's just, you know, nobody's Superman, right? Even like you, you, you said, uh, you literally gave the example of Superman, right? Like that, that can happen to anybody. Yeah. So. Yeah. This is never fun stuff to talk about. Right. But ultimately it's better. I always like to address it the right way once. So then you don't have to, you don't have to go through all this stuff and think about all these bad things happening to you again. You know, you just take care of it and, and get it over with. So. Yeah. And it, and it's, you know, if, if it's that word lifestyle, we want to envision, you know, our life, our lifestyle and the people that are important to us. And, and, you know, this is really just the best way to incubate that vision and protect you and, and, and try to create the most optimal scenario so that regardless of what plays out, you know, you can still feel pretty good about your life and the chances that things are going to go, you know, better than they could if, if, you know, we decide not to really properly address this or maybe, you know, fail to kind of see it that way. And, you know, you're right. It's critical and, and it's important that, you know, we really help people understand this and, and understand what they do have, what they don't have, and, and, you know, then provide them with plenty of options to be able to address what they want to address. It's a, it's a critical time. And, you know, in this time in our, in our, you know, human history with, uh, you know, a pandemic that's wreaking havoc, it's, uh, it just, it highlights that truth, right? That you just never know what can happen and, you know, better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, I mean, obviously I'm sure there's some people that, that maybe uh, hear this and they're thinking, well, I do have uh, a health issue. And I just think it's, it's probably worth addressing that too, that if you think you've got something that might preclude you from getting coverage, uh, I'm a very big believer, and this is something that's kind of old school in the industry, right? We, life insurance and disability insurance agents used to be called field underwriters. And I, I think the financial services industry has kind of moved away from that for a while now. And um, if you if you don't vet up front with a client, you can remove some options that they might otherwise have. So for instance, if you apply for disability insurance individually and you get declined, there are some options where an employer might be able to do guaranteed issue that you might not have anymore because now there's on record that you've gotten declined, right? So one of the things I always try to teach people who are starting out in the business and even people who just, you know, don't do a lot of disability insurance is we use something like an electronic medical questionnaire before we even apply for policy just to get the medical data, right? And if the client's disclosing everything and we find out they've got whatever MS or they've got uh, type one diabetes or something where they just wouldn't be able to get through underwriting to get approved, we'll, we'll halt the presses and say, we're not going to apply for this reason. And then from there, there's some of the options you could go to some higher risk carriers that might be willing to write uh, a policy even with that in issue there. But sometimes if somebody's in a C-suite or, or they're in a small company where they know the owners really well and everybody's like family, we can approach their employer and say, hey, look, this is this is a concern. One of your employees is, is wanting to get more coverage. They're not able to get it. And if we offered something through the company and use a group underwriting but it's still an individual product, you could sponsor that plan and then ultimately provide that to your key employees, right? Or 
even on a voluntary basis, may, maybe for a larger company. Like we're actually doing that um, for a large company uh, of about 100 people um, tomorrow. Actually, we're we're starting the enrollment process where they're carving out their their top 10 executives where the company is going to pay for it, and the other 70 employees they're going to offer it on a voluntary basis. So they'll go through without underwriting and still get an individual contract that they can they can keep and take with them if they ever leave the company too. So I just again always try to make sure you know look before you jump and and you know try to find the best solution for the individual client. Absolutely, and I and I'm glad that you mentioned that because that's a good uh, like final point. Because as you know, our practice deals with a lot of associations, and that's something that I think uh, it's really important for association professionals to be aware of in terms of how um, they can structure things either for themselves or for a certain group of their employees and, you know, really be able to provide significant benefit, especially since, in, you know, in, in, in that community, as well as a lot of other industries. But, you know, you might find out that, you know, certain people that are really critical to your success might have some concerns. And so that's a really important thing just to be aware of. And, yeah, it circles back to kind of what you said at the beginning, it, you know, really working with somebody that is an expert is is very, very important because you want to be able to have all of those options and not, you know, accidentally or unintentionally eliminate certain things just because, um, you know, you didn't really know how to navigate that. So that I'm glad that you, uh, yeah, you, you, you framed that very, very succinctly and that was really good. Thanks. What's the best way for somebody to contact you if they're like, Matt Grace is a genius and I got to reach out to him. How should people get a hold of you? Uh, I mean, LinkedIn's always an easy way, I find, for people to get in touch. If we don't have an existing relationship, it, it kind of cuts through the, uh, the the level of spam emails has uh, gone up immensely <laughs> over the past couple of years. So <laughs> yes. I'd say that's probably the easiest way. Shoot me a note, connect, and, you know, say, hey, I heard the podcast. I'd love to chat, and we can we can talk from there. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on today, my friend. Thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we'll all come out of this pandemic better for it and uh, have a little bit of fun being virtual in the meantime. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of the That's My Financial Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed yourself. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can find us online at thehaneycompany.com or on Twitter at The Haney Company. The information provided in this podcast is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. The Haney Company, its employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are encouraged to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant as the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicatory of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Brian Haney is a registered representative of Coastal Equities Incorporated and an investment advisory representative of Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated. Investment advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated, and securities are offered through Coastal Equities Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC.